All right, CK, how are you doing today? Doing um, good. Yes, uh, good to see. Good to see you. Uh, good to hear from you. Your place looks like I expected it. Um, Small in the middle of a city. Yeah, yeah, man. It looks nice though. Um, so, what are we talking about today? And uh, start it off. Yeah. So today, I thought it would be useful, um, kind of. Hence the, the title of the room to talk about incentives. Um, and if you, I think, who's the quote from? The quote was from, maybe, I think it was Charlie Munger, actually, Warren Buffett's investment partner. Um, he said, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcomes. And I think that's really important because we're at a time right now, I hate to say in society, but I think that's the best way to put it, where our institutions you can pretty much look anywhere at our institutions and, and see them failing. And my hypothesis as to what is causing our institutions to fail is the fact that they've become corrupted over time with perverse incentives, whether that was because a poor foundation was laid out initially um, and these incentive structures didn't emerge until later on, or maybe they, you know, didn't have perverse incentives initially and over time evolved to um, unfortunately uh, kind of have some non-society beneficial incentives. I think there's plenty of different examples. Um, before we dive deep, we're kind of like try and break this down from first principles. A um, couple of things that just came to mind that I would encourage the, the audience, anyone listening live or in the recording, I would encourage you to think about, you know, just incentive structures in general, but some examples to kind of get your, your thoughts going. Uh, you could think about incentives of central banking, the incentives of media corporations, the incentives of the pharmaceutical industry or the healthcare industry at large, particularly in the United States, as I think their incentive structures are much different from uh, the healthcare systems of other regions or countries. And then the military industrial complex, education in the United States, or um, like public health, I think uh, a hot topic right now is, is vaccines, obviously. And, and, you know, what are the incentive structures around that? If, what's the incentives to, to, to study long-term side effects if everyone is, is vaccinated? Think, things like that. Um, and, and just once again, those are all very key major institutions, um, many of them government-funded, but that I have seen failing. And it's, it's worth doing a, a deeper dive and kind of going at the ground level of what are the incentives so before I continue to ramble, what are your what are your thoughts on that, Matt? That'd be yeah. So um, my thoughts on that are, are you, what you outlined is some of the higher level incentive structures that I think we've gravitated towards looking at uh, because, in one way, shape, or form, um, you know, it all relates to an individual level as far as how those incentive structures end up influencing us as individuals. And, and not everybody is um, interested or wants to look at some of these larger um, institutional level incentive structures. But I do think that it's, 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 it's bleeding into society at a very basic level. Uh, your incentive, your employer's incentives right now are tied to institutional incentives, which are tied to government incentives. 
And so it's starting to actually affect um, everybody that we know as our common folks, um, at least from my perspective. And, and sometimes the questions being asked, um, I find to, to ask myself, why, why are you asking the questions that way? Because it doesn't seem like that's going to lead you into a logical answer. And I, and I really think that a logical answer is important and logical questions are important. And they seem to derive from questioning or looking at incentive structures. And, and then eventually you get to those higher level things that you just outlined. It, it inevitably leads you there. And I'm super interested in it. And I think that it's a topic of conversation that should be held uh, more often because the conversation is something that I was never taught to ask about. And it certainly seems that many others are not uh, mentally prone to look at incentive structures. And they might be the most important thing that attributes to our future. Definitely. And I think, you know, it, not only just our future, our, but our present our roots, day and our roots. Our, our, too, yes. our, well, our, 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 our primal instincts. I mean, everything, to, to my knowledge, I could be wrong. Um, and, and some people may object to this, but kind of the, the way I'm, I'm trying to think about this and, and think through it from like a first principle standpoint is, you know, go back to like the, the very first single cell. Right, that their incentive, that the, the incentive of that cell was to reproduce, was to get to the next generation, so that we could like slowly evolve and become like living, a living, thriving species, so we could adapt, survive, and thrive. Like hence, kind of the name of this podcast. And and um, you know, primal human beings, like the incentive is to to find food so that you can consume it and so that you can survive. The incentive is to find a mate so that you can reproduce or, um, you know, pass your genes on to the next generation. That's, that was our, our primal instinct and that's evolved. And, and you can say maybe society has shaped or changed some of that due to other man-made incentive structures. But I just think biologically, we all have these primal instincts and incentive structures. If you don't eat, you're not going to survive, period. That sticks with us to this day. Um, however, then we have other man-made incentives, such as if you don't pay your taxes, you will go to jail. And, and I think the relationship between, you know, institutionally imposed incentives and free market incentives is also an interesting topic to discuss because how much of, how much of the examples that I had outlined earlier you know, like I, I think I had mentioned central banking, media, pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, healthcare. How much of that is a result of, and the perverse incentives affiliated with that, how much of that is a result of, of free market incentives versus government or man-made incentives? And and if we if we were to either eliminate man-made or government incentives, or add additional man-made or government incentives, would that make the problem um, better or worse? Would it drive better or worse outcomes? And, and how does that vary over the short term versus the long term? And so I think, you know, we're talking very high level right now. Um, maybe we can dive dive deeper into one um, or many. Where, where would you like to take it? 
Well, um, I guess I would actually like to take it to something that I think a vast population can relate to and we can expand from there. Um, and I, and I think it has to do with man-made incentives, uh, good intentions or, 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 or bad that's irrelevant. Um, but, but I think leverage, uh, not in the form of debt or money, but leverage plays into the incentives that we see being, uh, being placed out in the world. And so let's start, let's start with employment, uh, if you don't mind. Sure. And one thing, sorry, before we dive into employment, I think it's a fine place to start, but um, just as an example, but I think let's also be careful as we discuss this, let's make sure we're focusing on the root causes of, of incentives as, as opposed to the symptoms. Like, I think a lot of times I've noticed as I've tried to, like, wrap my head around incentive structures, I've, I've tended to just go towards the low-hanging fruit, which a lot of times isn't actually going to solve any problems. Um, it's actually just a symptom of a perverse incentive or an incentive structure somewhere else kind of down the line. So I think employment is a fine place to start just as an example, but just something to keep in mind as we, as we dive a little bit deeper, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, no, that, that does make a lot of sense. And there's, you know, vast discrepancies in the incentives to employers. And, and you know, it's interesting because some of them are adopting the free market uh, version. And, you know, those tend to be, from what I see in a more entrepreneurial, small employment category. And uh, they seem to be trying to recruit employees um, with the incentive structure of basically freedom. Um, whereas as some employers uh, may not quite have that ability as an employer to advertise to that population. And so this gets, you know, industry specific, but would you, would you, would you disagree with me that the closer your business operations is to government affiliates or uh, large institutional ties, it, it would seem to be that the incentive structure uh, gets a little more narrow. Um, what I mean by that is, Let's hypothetically say you're in the education field, but you have a, a construction company that is contracted through the school systems, right? There's a possibility that if you want those contracts, even though you don't necessarily work for the federal government, you will need to abide by certain rules and regulations that really have nothing to do with your actual job and duty and task. And so where does that play into incentive structures, you know, from your opinion? Definitely. I think this is, this is interesting because when you talk about government, government contractors um, being paid by the government, it's also brings up kind of the discussion. Um, kind of one of the examples we talked about earlier was, was central banking and how, you know, when, when you, um, when your country 
as the reserve currency of the world, the world reserve currency, the United States dollar, you effectively, many would say, have the ability to print endlessly. That is what modern monetary theory is. You can just print as much money as you want and you can never um, run out effectively until, until you do. Um, and when the government has a limitless checkbook and ability to, to hand out cash, hand out money to pay people, such as contractors, it, you aren't really competing for any scarce resources. Whereas in other markets, you would be competing for scarce resources. There's an opportunity cost to the investment decisions that you're making. And it's a, it's a pretty lucrative market when your customer is a multi-trillionaire and, and, can, and can mint their own money. And it doesn't really seem like it's very difficult to do so either right now, um, which is another conversation. But I, you're pretty much, unless you have other customers to feed off of, um, to, to keep your business alive, pretty much beholden to the federal government and whatever mandates they tell you to do. And I think that's interesting because in many cases, it is, it is I think, a good thing when the customer is, is in, in control. Like what, what they are looking for, if that can be effectively produced, um, then, then they will exchange value for that. But the problem is, is that there's really... It's not necessary. The, the value here, and I think what we're talking about, most recent example is vaccine mandates for all, you know, federal government contractors recently or any or any employer with over 100 employees. But specifically, the customer relationship here being the government is, I think, um, what makes this relationship so interesting. And well, and there's exceptions, for instance, the USPS has a 600,000 person exemption, although they're federal employees. Um, so uniformity in these incentive structures sometimes is non-existent. Well, but so agreed. And that comes to like the union, for example, here with the USPS. But once again, like the USPS isn't a customer of the government necessarily. Yes, they get funding from the government, but I would say it's I could be wrong. Are they a government contractor or are they I would I would classify them more as like a a uh, government funded institution, whereas like contractors, I think, are maybe like construction companies that bid on contracts for the government. But they can also be like free market actors and operate in the private sector as well. Could be wrong. So 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 I would assume that you're right. Right. But we actually don't know if there's exclusive contracts that tie you to exclusive work with those government contracts. I'm fairly certain there is like there's there's a whole bidding system, both at the at the city, state, federal level. And that actually does make a lot of sense, because as a customer who's paying you to do my work, I actually do want to make sure that you're focused on my particular endeavor. And uh, that could happen in the private market, too. So it's not that these incentives couldn't exist in the private market, but when you have a overwhelmingly growing institution that covers the largest employment sector in the United States, even if you don't take into consideration their affiliate contractors, um, 
but then you have it in the education system, the police, the military, likely even building permits and everybody that works at those places. It, it, it begs the question of, um, is that power absolute in comparison to the free market, which could do the same things, but they may not have the, the leverage to convince affiliates to abide by those because they would be competing for scarce resources from multiple sources in the real world. Ultimately, if there's an agenda that is passed down through everything that I just mentioned, uh, that's a sprawling footprint of a unanimous incentive structure that is what, what would seem to be done from a very leveraged point of view. Yeah. Sorry, as you were talking, a couple ideas came to mind, just as you're talking about like free market exchange, um, things like that. And kind of want to pivot a little bit here. We can come back to the, the employment and federal contractors, but I just, um, and it's, this is still related, but like the military industrial complex, right? Um, funded by the United States government. I, the Afghanistan war, 20 years long, um, supposedly has been wrapped up within the last couple of weeks here to be determined if it will fully come to a close. But big TBD, correct. Let's, yes. Let's think about let's think about the military industrial complex and their incentives and what it means when your largest customer, presumably one of your only customers, has endless money. And, you know, I think the point of a free market is you're exchanging value um, for either a good or a service. And you pay people, presumably, uh, based on a number of factors, but primarily like the availability of it, the quality of it, um, and, and you know, many other factors. But let's, let's think about like availability and quality. So the quality of the military industrial complex their job, the, what, what the United States is supposedly exchanging value for to these contractors is, I would assume, um, ending the war or making progress towards the end of a war. So if, if that institution was operating effectively, they would have completed the war as soon as possible um, with you know as few resources as you know minimal loss of life, that is what a good military industrial complex, which I don't know if there is one such a thing as a good one, but if there was an effective one, that's probably a better term, an effective one, that's what it would do, is it would get it done quickly and with minimal loss of life and and minimal resources used. And but because the money printer goes burr, as many people like to say, and it's endless. You know, in, in, in these, you know, uh, contractors, whatever you want to call them, they are getting wealthier as a result of the continuation of this war. They aren't actually getting wealthy based on the end of the war, because if the war ends, there is no more demand for their product. The government has no need to continue printing. And... Correct. You know, we're talking, what was the amount? I think it was $2 trillion, right, that we spent 
estimated, estimated total to trillion, trillion dollars. Yes. And I think we throw around the, the terms uh, billion and trillion nowadays, like it's nothing uh, as a result of money printing. But it's it's really, a, it's kind of hard to fathom that you could spend $2 trillion on a war and not win it. I don't know. Um, but it, once again, every year or every presidency. Can I, can I just yeah, back up yeah, one go, second? Go ahead, go ahead. So yes, it would be hard to fathom that you could spend those type of resources and, and have that duration of 20 years and not win the war. But, but it begs the question, just like you just outlined, it only is a mystery if the incentive structure was to end the war. Otherwise, it's really not so much of a mystery. That, that's what I'm saying is that, you know, we have these institutions that their goal, like healthcare, you would assume it's very similar. You would very assume similar. the goal is um, improved health outcomes. You'd assume the military's goal is to end the war. But then you look at how they're compensated. And once again, they're not compensated based on achieving those objectives. And so it begs the question, are those really the objectives or are those the perceived objectives? Exactly. And, and this, this is, um, yeah, <laughs> this is the topic that I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with here. And how do you, how do you move towards a solution? Because I'm not entirely sure that you can take these existing institutions and rebuild them with better incentive structures without completely gutting them and, and tearing them down. And I don't mean like, you know, an uprising or a revolution. I'm not calling for that by any means. Um, I'm, I'm, I want to be as, as peaceful as possible, but I think it's, it's worth diving deep on how do we reshape the incentive structures. You have things like, like healthcare. There's, there's, there's um, models out there that aren't really being implemented widely, but like value-based health outcomes. It, basically, doctors are not compensated um, in this in this new world. The doctors wouldn't be compensated for the number of heads that they see or patients that they see. Uh, rather, they would um, be compensated based on the quality of the health outcomes and and what um, what what procedures are you actually preventing. So, insurance companies would compensate a a doctor. Let's let's say it's a, a hip surgery, right? Let's say if the hip surgery goes as, as good as possible and it's flawless, the patient wouldn't need to do any physical therapy. Let's, I, I doubt that's the case, but let's just say that. The doctor would be compensated more in a scenario where physical therapy is avoided because it was so good as opposed to a scenario where the surgery didn't go as well as planned, things like that. Um, that's a messy topic, healthcare and health insurance in general, but it's right now. But it's actually very similar to what what you started off with. Yeah, which, you know, they, they let's go back to that the military industrial complex. The incentive isn't to end the war. The incentive right now is to, is to keep the war going because the people who are supposedly in charge of ending the war are making money off of it continuing. And I I um another example of this. Sorry, I'm just throwing out examples here. Um about just flawed decision-making and reactive kind of incentive structures and not really thinking about this from a first principle standpoint, when hospitals were compensated for COVID patients, 
they weren't compensated, as far as I know, and I could be wrong, they weren't compensated um, and, and provided like federal funding based on, you know, how well are you treating people and are you keeping people alive? Because we should be funding you more if you're actually like preventing death. They were, they were funded based on how many resources, how, like how much resources are you going through? Because we need to keep up that resource utilization so they're not using resources effectively. And then two, how many, how many COVID deaths do you have? They're literally compensated based on how many COVID deaths. So if someone died from cancer, but also tested COVID positive, like these people have been dying for months because of cancer, unfortunately. Um, if they counted that as a COVID death, that worked to their advantage. Like that doesn't make sense for anyone. That's it's it's distorting data. It is, it is it, sure it helps the hospital. It's distor- and it's distorting progress too, because there's there's a there's a there's an opportunity cost for everything, right? And based on that incentive structure, it made it a priority versus other things that the healthcare system uh, had demand for, right? And so essentially by manipulating the incentive structure, you, you are robbing uh, that industry of completing valuable procedures or healthcare opportunities in place because the capacity didn't allow for both. And, and ultimately you are then uh, basically making the decision for somebody on which choice to choose. Uh, allocate resources to COVID, allocate resources to other things like elected procedures, which unfortunately sometimes aren't actually very elective to the people who need them, right? They're actually pretty, pretty essential. And so when you have a capacity of scarce resources, which is really just hospitals and personnel, human capital, but you have an unlimited supply of paper money to utilize it as an incentive structure that all of these places still need to function. It's not a, it's not a free lunch, right? You're, you're robbing opportunity and resources from inside the same sector that you are providing opportunity and resources from it's market manipulation and results distortion. And, and, and that doesn't lead to optimal results and that, begs the question of, do we have a poor incentive structure? And then how do you fix it? Well, I don't know, but I do have a feeling that the conversation starts with more transparency. Like, does it not? It has to start there. I think it has to start with with more transparency. The unfortunate thing is, is as human beings, we have a limited ability to digest all of the available information being thrown at us. We're prone to kind of use these heuristics, uh, the natural heuristics that are kind of like available to us or our mental models to try and make sense of the world. But really, we're, there's no way we could fully take in all of the streams of information to, to make sense of it, um, even if there was that transparency. But I still so this, think the transparency is I do. I, and we can delve into that a little bit more later. But like, here's an example of what you're saying that is super troublesome to digest information as a populace that is America or any other nation for that matter. Um, you look at the military industrial complex, you look at the incentives that we outlined, whether it be to, uh, you know, uh, treat people's symptoms in the healthcare field versus preventative care, 
or or uh, end the war versus con- continue the war, right? And and this example that I'm going to give you uh, would seem to be fear based. I don't I don't know if there was any intentions behind it, but look at the incentive structure around Guantanamo Bay, for instance, and the information that led to the invasion of Iraq, searching for WMDs that ultimately just didn't exist because the information was derived from a facility that incentivized somebody to say something based on fear. And that essentially allowed the continuation of a war in a different place kind of stealing away and still robbing Afghan from the original purpose. And and the question is, um, was that a good use of resources? Did that improve people's lives? And why did that happen? And in my opinion, it was the incentive structures. Now, there was a lot of legitimate fear from our administration and our populace at that time. Lack of transparency, lack of time of U.S. citizens, and maybe even our current administration uh, because they outsourced their information from the military industrial complex. So, yeah, how do you get to transparency is something that I'm uh, a little confused about. Yeah, sorry, you talked about Iraq and you talked about incentive structures and WMDs. And I don't really know like how that all unfolded. Nobody does except the people that were there at the time. But I do know one thing is that bringing it back to central banking, which if you can't tell, a lot of the, my hypothesis is that a lot of our broken incentive structures and institutions are a result of central banking. Um, but Iraq actually threatened in November of 2000. So roughly 10 months before 9-11, Iraq threatened to get off of the U.S. dollar standard and not use the dollar as their reserve currency. And who knows what incentives that played, right? Um, Millions, billions, if not trillions of dollars, most likely not trillions, but millions or billions of dollars um, that could be cost. And, and, And if they successfully opted out of the U.S. dollar, this is kind of like you see the adoption of Bitcoin right now, right? Like if, if the adoption of Bitcoin in El Salvador succeeds, the game theory says we need to, other countries will begin to adopt. Similarly, if Iraq, which I honestly, I was so young that I don't know at the time all of the bad things or really enough about us, or, um, what, Saddam Hussein to truly know what, what was going on in that country at the time. So I'm just acknowledging my ignorance. Um, but if they succeeded, that would tell other countries, whether whether they're um, in, you know in the Middle East or in Asia or in um, Africa or Europe or South America, getting off the dollar is possible and it's possible to succeed. And currencies are the perfect example of network effects. So if you have an effective opt out of one system, the new system becomes more valuable as others begin to opt in. And and so putting a stop to that in its tracks was absolutely vital for the central bank of the world reserve currency. And I don't know 
exactly if that was related. But you can see how there's a there's an interaction between people who either one have perverse incentives and they're acting out of greed and they know that what they're doing is morally wrong, but it is going to line their pockets. Therefore, they do it. There's that side of the incentive structure. And then there's also the people that are what I like to call like asleep at the wheel. They're just acting according to the system and the infrastructure that's been laid out for them to act accordingly. And they're not really thinking about it. It's, it's, it's as simple as I'm hungry. My stomach is growling. I am going to eat instead of actually thinking about, well, why am I hungry? You know, do I need to eat right now? Am I just telling it's, it's people not consciously operating and paying attention to the interaction of all these different institutions um, around them and the man-made interactions. So I don't, I don't know how much more I have to say about, about that. And, and, but I think it's, it's worth, worth discussing. It's a timely topic since given the fact that nine 11 was kind of what spawned that in 2001 and it, September 12th right now. So um, just the day after the 20th anniversary of 9-11. But um, yeah, sorry, I kind of cut you off. So if you had anything else to say, continue. No, no, uh, that was pretty much, you know, uh, where I was going with it. And, and, and some of these conversations that we just bleed out loud with our thoughts are, are really just a, a display of, you know, critical thinking on these subjects. And I think that there's the necessity to just do that out loud to make it known that that is the way to get started in analyzing the why of things, whether it be why I am hungry or why we are going to war or why my doctor is recommending these things or why my employer uh, may or may not be giving me a raise or may or may not be mandating something for me to do my job, right? And so the thought process has to be triggered, right? You, you have to want to think about it. And unfortunately, sometimes that isn't the most happy or serene uh, Sorry, I just got a phone call. But When you say interconnected with institutions, it is hard to wrap your head around that. And we don't necessarily need to transition to this quite yet, but I do think that what is being built in decentralized finance and blockchain and the little baby or infancy stage that we're currently at finally is reaching the point where some of these decentralized oracles like Chainlink and some of these uh, platforms are growing to be able to interact with these institutions. And what type of opportunity does that bring for new incentive structures uh, without the absolute trust of an institution to play into that, right? Because all these things without gutting them need to somehow interact with each other in a manner that progresses to future benefits for all humanity, in my opinion. And I don't quite see a way 
to do that in the old legacy system because the repeat has just continuously been repeated, right? And now we finally have something that is growing out of its infancy stage and will be able to hook up with the existing institutions and still create a more transparent and different incentive structure and so, so where do you, where, what's your thoughts on what I just outlined as a high level topic? Yeah. So a couple of things, and then I want to go backtrack before we go down this hole, but um, I was asking myself this question the other day, you know, about, you know, Bitcoin, DeFi. I think Bitcoin is a little more immune to perverse incentives, a lot more immune to perverse incentives as compared to a lot of these other DeFi projects just given the nature of the consensus mechanism of proof of work versus like proof of stake or proof of history, which I believe Solana uses. Um, and yep. the question everyone, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're a developer, that everyone in my opinion needs to be asking themselves when, because really all these, these um, projects and many startups too, the goal is to displace an existing institution or solve a problem created by existing institutions. And I was particularly thinking about it with um, climate change actually the other day, which the validity of that topic is something to discuss at a later date. But, you know, I, I see big oil was a, what I would call a corrupted institution in kind of a, um, a big industry that I would say was corrupted led to maybe perverse incentives with wars 20 years ago and even in, in the more more recent history. Well, and it ties to the dollar, right? And it, it ties and it, to the, the Exactly, 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 exactly. And, and how do we ensure that if we're going to build effective climate technologies, that we're, that's actually what we're doing? Like we're actually building um, things that that reduce our carbon emissions or pollution or whatever, if that's even the right metric to go off of. And, and how do we prevent that from being corrupted in the same way that big oil is corrupted? Because one thing is I see people are so hyper-focused on solar energy, on wind energy, on hydro energy, but nobody cares about nuclear energy. Nuclear energy, we know how to do it. It's more readily available. It's less expensive. It makes so much more sense. Yes, there's risk associated with it. People are afraid because of um, past, events. past events. I mean, in Russia, Japan, and you, know, you saw like Chernobyl, and, and, and people, that's, that's the go-to. That's what people always want to point the finger at when you talk about the nuclear discussion. But are we really trying to eliminate carbon emissions and, 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 and pursue a path towards clean energy? Or are we just trying to line the pockets of the people who have institutional capture, meaning the people whose incentives are tied to solar, wind, hydro, et cetera, electric vehicles, even though that uses a ton of coal right now, and it, it, it's mining rare earth materials, and in, in children are, using, are doing it in Africa, mining for those materials. Are those people... And leading that front, 
are they do they just have the regulatory and institutional capture that has allowed them to succeed over something like nuclear, which has historically been more unpopular? And we don't have to go down the rabbit hole with that, but it's something worth thinking about of how do we ensure that as we try and pave these paths forward with these new industries, be it climate change or cryptocurrency, how do we ensure that we don't become corrupted, not by the same people, by the same, but by the same incentives as our legacy institutions? That is the key question um, that I think every Correct. founder, developer, or aspiring entrepreneur needs to be asking themselves because if you don't ask it early on, you truly run the risk of your business not being sustainable in the long term or, or, or solving the problems that you set out to solve in the first place. Um, sorry, long tangent. I'm going to continue with another one. So I apologize. Just tell me to shut up if you need me to. Um, the, keep, the other keep thing I was thinking about is, is kind of this, the nature of conscious versus unconscious incentive structures. And we can kind of, I can kind of split people into th three categories um, in how people view conscious versus unconscious operation as it relates to incentive structures. You have one group of people who thinks everyone is operating consciously and everyone leading these institutions is bad. Everyone of these people know the vaccine is bad. If it is or isn't, I don't know. I'm not saying it is. I, I'm, I'm vaccinated. Um, but like, Every one of these people knows it's bad and they want to inject people and they're Malthusian economists and, and, and they're operating because they know that they're going to line the pockets of people at Pfizer or Moderna or whatever. There's those people that think everyone's yep. consciously acting on greed and perverse incentives. You have the other end of the spectrum of people who yep. think, you know, no, no, they would never do that. You know, people are good. And, and, you know, if there are perverse incentives, these people are doing it unconsciously and they're just, what I said earlier, asleep at the wheel or asleep behind the wheel. And then you have the people in the middle, this third, or ignorant, yes, yeah, so they're asleep at the wheel. They're not paying yes. attention or they're too lazy to open their eyes. Um, and then you have this, this third category, which is we have both. We have people who are operating consciously in their own personal um, incentives or group incentives. And then you have people who... Um, kind of carry out the orders of that those people and maybe doing it unconsciously. You can relate this back to you know I, nobody thinks that that uh, Nazi Germany could could happen part two right nobody ever thought that would be a thing, um, but it's it's very possible. Some would argue it has already happened in in many places um, throughout history. Whether you want to look at Japanese internment camps, not nearly as um, bad to my understanding, but it it had um, similarities and. Because, you know, if you have people who maybe have perverse incentives or are corrupted, um, and they're operating consciously on what many people would know to be wrong. If they can be inspirational enough or, you know, um, grab hold, if they can sell it, perfect, perfect. If they can sell it enough, they sell can it sell well it enough, they're going to have troops on the ground that operate blindly or unconsciously and allow that person's sales pitch to override their moral compass or what they would otherwise believe to be, to be good. Um, and I don't, I don't know how much this relates to conscious versus unconscious, but I think it's, it's something worth um, talking about or thinking about is, you know, is this person acting consciously or are they a good person? Because that can kind of help you level with people um, as we become more polarized. Like if you're trying to have a discussion with someone and, and uh, enlighten them on these perverse incentive structures, 
it's always good to figure out like, are these, is this person greedy or are they just listening to and trusting what they've been told? Um, and it creates empathy. I think it's a good place to come from. Yeah. Um, but I would say another thing, and I think this does relate to conscious versus unconscious in, to some extent, but I've been reading this book, which I don't know where it is. I think I had it somewhere. Yeah. It's called, it's called Virtue Signaling um, by Jeffrey Miller. It's essays on Darwinian politics and free speech. And um, near the beginning of the book, I'm not quite finished with it, but near the beginning of the book, he talks about virtue signaling, hence the title of the book. And, and he talks about cheap virtue signaling versus um, expensive virtue signaling. And I think virtue signaling is a term that people have um, heard uh, thrown around a lot. Quite frequently. Um, especially in politics. And he, he, he distinguishes between the, the cheap and expensive virtue signaling by saying cheap virtue signaling is something that requires very little effort, not a lot of thought, and, you know, gives you an advantage. For example, someone putting, posting a picture um, of just like the black screen in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, or someone putting their pronouns or hashtag BLM in their Twitter or Instagram bio. That is a form of cheap virtue signaling. Um, it, it, or, or, or someone wearing a, a jersey of a, of a sports team, right? That's a virtue signal. Um, I, I, I am affiliated with this, and then hopefully it would make you more attractive or a more valuable individual to other people who are part of that in-group. Um, and then there's more expensive virtue signaling, which are you know the things that maybe would be viewed as less popular, but like like having a moral responsibility or in, in acting on your moral responsibility. It may have some cost in the short term to stick up for what you truly believe in, but in the long run, um, holding true to those beliefs will be beneficial. So I kind of like to relate the cheap virtue signaling to short-term rewards and the long-term virtue signaling, or excuse me, the expensive virtue signaling to be more beneficial in the long run. And it, just to give you a and just to distinguish the difference that you just outlined, right? The, the, the expensive virtue signaling is expensive to the individual who is doing that virtual signaling because there is an overwhelming short-term cost, whether that's ridicule, financial, business opportunity. Uh, the cheap virtue signaling, what you're saying is, is there's essentially no cost to it or very yes, minimal. Like, and, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't say there's always like a, a negative cost or you're going to have to like a societal cost to it. Another example of more expensive virtue signaling is people who take care of their health, right. In, in all areas, like it is, it's, it takes effort to go to the gym. All right. So it's the reason it's expensive is because it requires more effort. It requires more effort. Exactly. And whereas the, the, the short term, uh, cheap virtue signaling does not. And, and the thing I find interesting about it, and we can relate this to like, uh, cancel culture right now is or just in society in general like we're i think we have become a society of people who just are everything is a virtue signal and we have become so um conditioned to act on inexpensive cheap short-term virtue signals and you know like i want the dopamine rush or i don't want to get canceled or i want to feel like i'm a part of this group or I want to get retweets, you know, it doesn't, it's, it, 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 
And that's indicative of like impulsory behavior, which I would actually categorize our country as a whole to, to have that tendency. Yes. And, and I think, I think this also relates to, and I'm trying to bring this full circle to technology here. So I'm, I'm getting there. You, you think right, about historically right. pre-internet, it was, it was expensive to, to put out your thoughts and your ideas to the world. Not only did you need to prove your like worthiness of like, you know, people wanting to listen to you to get published or something, but you also typically had to put in more thought and more effort into how you're constructing it because there's not really an edit button, right? Like if you're using a typewriter, like you, you, ha you have to take it out and white it out and redo it over and over again. Um, you have to make multiple copies of it. You have to distribute it. You have to find a way to get your ideas out there in a distribution channel. And you have to make sure that once it's out there, that it's something that people find worth consuming and listening to and reading. And so I think, um, and I'm, I'm kind of thinking about more like publishing your ideas, but you can see how pre-technology, and I mean, there you can argue there's a lot of technology, but pre-the technology we're familiar with, you know, 50 plus, 70 plus years ago. Um, what it made short-term cheap virtue signaling uh more scarce you had you were you were operating in a world of typically what we would now relate to relatively speaking as more expensive virtue signaling well there was a filter of cost That's what i'm saying the cost is what subsequently made it expensive and as technology permeated society and, you know, we had the introduction of the Internet and you could send emails widely or, you know, think of something like Twitter or Facebook and you could publish things to virtually an unlimited number of people to be consumed instantaneously. The cost was extremely low. And um, in many cases, it, it was also going back 50 to 70 years, it was a lot harder to know exactly how well received your message was at that point in time. It wasn't as easy as a like button or a retweet button to know that people agreed with you. And so maybe you didn't always just do things that people would agree with, but at least something that would, um, that was more thoughtful and required more effort. But now it's, um, it's a lot easier. And so are people more inclined to you know, um, opt into cheaper short-term incentives, such as getting likes and retweets, instead of actually thinking about the content that they're putting out there and, and things of that nature. And would you also say that it, likely because of the data collection and the low cost, low time commitment to publish uh, things at scale, it makes it easier to actually then cater to your audience versus um, continuing to publish based on your own thoughts, beliefs, and interests. Absolutely. I mean, the incentives are to, to gain a following, to hear what people say with, to say things that people agree with. And I mean, why do you think the contrarian investors of people at like Founders Fund, you know, Peter Thiel, famous for being um, more of a contrarian, why do you think they're so successful? It's because we live in a world where people always want to do what other people um, agree with and will approve of when the asymmetric upside is doing the exact opposite of that, actually.
And um, I think kind of uh, kind of lost my train of thought here, but um, you know, we live in a world where now it's it's you're much more inclined to want to have likes and retweets and like you said, tailoring to your audience as opposed to going against the grain. Because a lot of times um, that agreement and people agreeing with you is also tied to revenue streams. You look at media. You look at media nowadays. If you are saying things that people agree with and um, people people like, whether it makes them upset, it's it's how it's framed. If it, if it's a if it's a statistic or data that makes them mad about you know white nationalists storming the Capitol, uh, it might make them mad. But as long as it's framed in a way that sides with their existing beliefs, it's going to drive clicks, which is subsequently going to drive revenue. And will subsequently drive more followers um, and things like that. But if you if you are more contrarian in that sense, you're going to lose your followers. And and don't get me wrong, if you're not providing the value that people want, um, fine. I guess they have the ability to opt out. But what are they paying for? You know, are they in these media companies? Are they paying to hear things that they agree with? Or are they paying to enlighten? themselves and enhance their perspective. Um, sorry, that was kind of a, another tangent, but you can see where I'm, I'm kind of going, where we had this web 0.0, where you had this um, pen to paper type of communication and distribution channel. Then you had the in, it, non-digital, there you go. And then you had the interaction of like web 1.0, which you could distribute it to many people, but there weren't necessarily these platforms with network effects. And then you have web 2.0, which we're now seeing with Facebook and Twitter uh, and other platforms <clears throat> that make the idea of getting canceled like much more risky because a lot of your livelihood or your followership is tied to these platforms. And then now we're moving towards web 3.0. And how does that change the incentive structure. And um, I would argue that a lot of a lot of these incentive structures today are a result of human bias and human intervention. Once again, whether you know a mixture of both conscious and unconscious intervention in acting on those incentives. But with a protocol, if you if you construct it right. If you if you make it worth something, the, it, it, it ha, there has to be a cost associated with um, acting. And like, how is that protocol constructed and what costs um, are imposed on people for what actions? And if you can construct those protocols in the right way and deploy them via Web 3.0. Aside from the humans developing it. You effectively eliminate the corruption um, by humans and human bias. So does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, and I would say we are on the infancy stages of that. And, and, you know, hopefully we continue to make exponential progress in that. And, and this is beyond my knowledge a little bit, but, but it, it has actually pretty amazing that, the amount of resources and independent developers building on these things to construct these protocols that you outline has happened, right? And, and, and so 
there obviously is a desire to look for an alternative. I don't think one is fully built out yet, but the web 3.0 and the protocols that uh, at least strongly diminish corruption or eliminate it, depending on what blockchain and, 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 and what type of cost is associated with the protocol, that from me asking myself questions repeatedly, seems to really be where the hope lies. Because I, I, I don't have any real conversation on uh, rehabilitating the old system the way it is with the with the tools that it's capable of, of doing and, and the way that they conduct and, and distribute and spend resources, right? Many of these larger institutions such as banks have massive teams of people that work on proprietary programs that are virtually identical to their competitors, but they don't talk to each other, right? So it's kind of the same thing about where, what are we really trying to do? What's the, what are we really trying to do? Are we trying to progress and make a better world for humanity? Or are we kind of, as Peter Thiel would say, maybe not progressing as fast as we are capable of because we are allocating resources through human capital and money you know, to build things that really have limited capabilities, right? If I'm on Fidelity and I have a Schwab brokerage account, those two exchanges are basically the same, require the same resources, require the same human capital, but answer me why there really needs to be two of them. Yeah. I, and, so, and what type of leverage does that give if there's only really five of them in the world? What, what's the opportunity cost of that? And it seems to be stagnation. Yes. And I, I think what is contributing to a lot of the stagnation right now is the fact that with these distributed, distributed systems and or protocols and the in Web 2.0 even, I think what Web 2.0 did is it gave rise slash empowered the long tail. And what I mean by the long tail is like very niche interests or very niche topics that fall outside of the category of like the mainstream. When in, in, in the non-digital world, when you can't connect with, with other human beings via the internet, um, it may be really difficult to find people who share similar interests. Whereas, in, sorry, this is going to be a longer one, apologize. Um, it may be more difficult to find people who have similar interests if you're just operating in the physical world. But in the digital world, it allows you to create a group on Facebook or to use a hashtag on Twitter of something that you're interested in. And immediately you are connected with people who share that similar niche view. And there's not just like one niche view. There's thousands, maybe you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of niche views. And when you combine all of those niche views together and all of the people in that, um, in long tail, in aggregate, it significantly outweighs, it actually would dwarf 
the totality of the mainstream and the influence of the mainstream when you combine the influence of all of the long tail combined. And so um, how I'm relating to this is is the fact that and you can you can even relate this politically too. is, you know, how can the, the Democrats and Republicans be the only two parties when you see so many people who don't like either of them? And the answer is because all of the people who don't like either of them have very niche views and people can't necessarily agree on one thing. Um, so they end up just op- opting in to choose one of the other two. And so the long tail actually would outweigh either of the two parties. In, in, in if you want to think about like populism, for example, I think you have a populist left and you have a populist right. And if you combine those two together, that's exactly what these legacy institutions cannot allow to happen. The existing political party cannot allow the, the populist left and populist right to come together. So what do they do? They divide them on stupid issues that are full of cheap virtue signaling, such as race. Or, you know, I think that's probably the biggest one is race. And the biggest one is race, which ties into inequality, which we say we're trying to improve, but our actions, in my opinion, are directly doing the opposite, right? Agreed. Let's stay on track because we could go on a whole tangent. All right. Um, but, and I, I, it's something worth discussing, but let's keep going here. So, so the long tail in aggregate, like I said, outweighs the existing institutions. So as long as they can continue to keep the long tail divided, the, the, the long tail are these existing oligopolies across many different industries the, or, or institutions. And as long as they keep people divided, I think that's why I, I struggle with, you know, I know the most about proof of work when it comes to blockchain protocols. Um, I know way more about proof of work than I know about, admittedly, about proof of stake or proof of history. And I, I, I've caught myself yeah, many yeah. times becoming extremely tribal with proof like and, and, and gravitating towards proof of work instead of proof of history, yeah. proof of stake. And I think there's valid criticisms for all three of them to, to hear out. But like as long as they can keep the three divided completely, um, it's, it's going to be a little while and they can survive just a little bit longer. But I think inevitably um, they're going to gain the traction that they need and it's just going to make sense. And one or multiple are going to win out. I would argue there's a place for multiple in the, in the future world. But, but that is why I think it's so difficult to, um, you know, just having superior innovation is not enough because that superior innovation right now is, is fragmented across the long tail. And if we really want to make progress, and um, what was it that you had said about Peter, Peter Thiel just a few minutes ago? Um, we are not achieving the progress that we are capable of, not due to our innovation capabilities. It's due to our essentially personal inadequacies and... Um, you know, fundamental dividedness. Agree. And I would say that, um, I would say we're not achieving the innovation and the progress at scale. But I would also say that that doesn't mean that it's not happening. And I I agree with that statement. I would see, I would say that it's happening, but it's happening 
and it's fragmented within the long tail and it almost becomes trapped. And it, 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 when you have existing network effects, it makes it really difficult. That's, that is the biggest advantage that the United States government has. That is the biggest advantage that Facebook, Twitter, Google, Apple all have is their existing network effects. And until there's a way to fully empower the long tail, we're not going to see innovation at scale that is in line with how it actually is occurring in the long tail. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, how it is actually occurring in the long tail, you really mean that... Uh... Our ability to accept innovation at scale is bottlenecked not by our ability to innovate in the long tail, but by the institution's ability to suppress the scaling and adoption of that innovation from the long tail. As long as existing oligopolies with network effects can suppress the innovation taking place in the long tail or steal the innovation at the long tail, they will retain their place. And and even though the innovation is occurring in the long tail, it's not going to come to scale. So what you're saying is it, it's making it more difficult for the collective long tail to efficiently use their resources in the innovative manner that they would like to. Yeah, it's just difficult to get adoption. But we are seeing. It. We are. Oh, 100 percent. We're seeing it. And I think the legacy. Is and it's actually some people would some people would actually say it's happening fast. But I think what Peter Thiel is is alluding to is uh, use your imagination for a second and imagine how fast it actually could go instead of how fast it's actually going. Exactly. Because although it's impressive. Uh, there's still truly missed out potential. And and there's incentive structures to keep the network effects where they're at. And those are actually being slowly eroded uh, for the new alternative that is not quite complete yet. And maybe it never will. But it's, it's, it's interesting to see the brilliant minds and the effort. It's effort. The amount of effort that's happened in the last decade since... Uh, really Bitcoin was introduced and then blockchain layers came on top of that is astonishing. It's, it's really only 12 years, but it's still astonishing at the lack of progress that we made in 10 years. If you pick apart some of these pieces. Agreed. And it's, it's almost like the true exponential nature of this adoption and growth is not being fully realized yet. But I think like it is happening faster than, than things historically. Historically, like I think Raul Paul had uh, previously talked about how adoption of Bitcoin and Ethereum is um, very closely mimicking, if not exceeding the adoption of the internet. So, the internet. And, 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 and we're still really early, like it's in the, in the very early stages. Um, but, but yes, I, if there was a way to expedite adoption. And I, I honestly think the way to do that is to eliminate human intervention. And human intervention is taking place 
as a result of the institutions in power. It's like the people who are going to be disrupted by these new technologies are the ones who are determining how fast they're going to move and how fast adoption is going to take place and what incentives there are going to be to not adopt something. And um, they're effectively in a position to choose the winners and losers. And regardless of how much you love proof of work versus proof of stake versus proof of history, whatever camp you fall into, if you fall into one, if you truly care about the free market and you believe that the protocol or protocols that you advocate for are superior, then they should effectively win out in a free market. And and eliminating that human and government intervention is necessary. But that doesn't mean that as that adoption takes place and unfolds, that there isn't going to be pain, that people aren't going to over go, go 100x leverage and aren't going to get wiped out. It doesn't mean that price volatility isn't going to be a feature of this until it gets mass adoption. All of those things are given. And up to this point, the people that have adopted these technologies, which is a ridiculously high number, these people have accepted them for what they are. And there's network effects on these um, protocols as well. So if people are continuing to accept it before this government intervention. As more people opt in, it's going to become more valuable for everyone else. And the network effects are going to continue to unravel. I mean, for God's sakes, it, Facebook was launched in like 2005 or 2006. It took 15 years for the government to like actually start trying to create policy and starting to police um, Facebook. How long did it take for Apple? You know, how long did it take for Twitter, Google? It took a really long time. Amazon. Yeah, thank you. And Amazon. Um, like, and they still don't know how, how to do it or how to get it right. What makes them think they're going to understand? Cryptocurrency is by far, like, you, nobody understands it. Even the people who live and breathe it on a daily basis do not understand it. So what the hell do these politicians think they're doing? that is going to allow them to, to somehow effectively um, regulate this market. I don't care. Uh, I don't care if, you, if, if your sole job is to regulate cryptocurrency. You're still not going to do it effectively. I, the best way, in my opinion, is to let the market incentives play out and completely remove any human intervention. Sure, if you want to tax it, I personally am not a fan of taxation, but like if you want to treat it like any other type of asset, fine. But like, do not tell me who is or who is not going to be treated as an exchange. Like this whole what they tried to put into the infrastructure bill, you know. But don't you think that's so counterintuitive to the thought processes of our elected officials that write uh, regulation, right? Like. Government intervention in the free market arguably has made our market not a free market. Is it one of the most free in the world? Like, I would still say that to be accurate, but capitalism has a funny definition. And I'm not even going to try to make an attempt at what I may think the current capitalism uh, definition is. Uh, but it's not likely the one that uh, I held as a young adolescent of a free market. And so it's really just habits, right? Like 
if you put that cryptocurrency in front of a regulatory body, my expectations is that they would do exactly what they were doing. And we're going to see what that leads to. But it's kind of like, uh, this analogy might not be appropriate, but I'm still going to use it. Um, you might have a lot of friends that have raised babies, right? But when you have your own, uh, there really is no written rule plan, especially because the world continues to change every year. And we've saw parenting change and there's not a unanimous way to do it. And currently right now, I would say cryptocurrency is an infant. And if you want to mold and, and, and regulate that child, inevitably you're going to make a mistake. Um, and and on, this really isn't your child, right? This is, this is, in my opinion, technically the world's child. And so um, I, would, I would just basically plead that there should be as minimal regulation on it as possible due to lack of understanding. And now this is a decentralized system versus Facebook and Amazon, which was a centralized system, which was, in my opinion, a little bit more in the confined to be regulated with previous uh, monopoly legislation that was outlined years and years and years ago, right? But if you were ineffective on that, how are you going to be effective at legislating this? And I don't actually think it's in America's the best interest to screw that up. It's it's funny, like, once again, you know, what the amount of regulation the government should or should not, you know, impose is one thing. But even if you want to, even if you agree that some regulation makes sense, like, fine, let's agree that some regulation makes sense or let's let's entertain it. Does it make sense for the people creating the regulations to also be the ones that are effectively competing with this new technology? Because everything, and it's tough, because everything is ripe for disruption. Pretty much all of our legacy institutions are ripe for disruption. And we, we have politicians who aren't, we aren't any longer outsourcing thinking to them about critical issues. And I mean, they're not just thinking and doing what makes sense based on principles. Many times, it, it it can determine uh, what their livelihood looks like. That's why the game theory is once you get a couple senators that start adopting Bitcoin or hear about Bitcoin or hear about cryptocurrency, they're immediately going to flip. Um, because the second that that from from the inside, the the people begin to um, the, our leaders, quote unquote leaders, begin to lose trust in the system. In, in the U.S. dollar, and they want to opt out, even if they, whether they want to opt out and they lose trust, or they just want to experiment with it, it's this: they have an incentive to to see it, whether it, it offsets it or it it eliminates the incentive to allow the old guard to persist. And either way, though, even you know, selfishly, I would love it if every senator adopted Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and understood it. But I don't think that's realistic. And I also don't think that we're ever going to get to a point where truly objective decision-making and truly representative decision-making 
is a thing. And going to really a philosophical conversation about government now, like if if you win based on 51% of the vote, of the, of the uh, popular vote, that still means that 49% of the population doesn't feel that you represent them accurately. And quite honestly, probably 51% of those people don't agree with everything. So there's really tr- truly no good representation. But we still outsource a lot of critical decisions to these people. And I've been reading a lot more about like anarchism. And a lot of people, when they hear anarchism, oh, they think craziness in the streets. It, it immediately it, it immediately triggers, triggers fear. And that's exactly what the propaganda was um, designed to do. It, it, it's just what it was. Um, it would really, if you look at the definition, it says belief. Anarchism is the belief in the abolition of all government and the organization of society on a voluntary cooperative basis without recourse to force or compulsion. And many early anarchist thinkers, which, um, gosh, I can't remember the name um, of who said this, but basically, if there is to be a government, the only role that the government should play is protecting my rights to property. And property, um, in the early stages of thinking, it wasn't just like, oh, you know, I own, I own this pen. You know, the government should protect my right to own this pen or this house. It actually was even deeper than that to say that the the purest form of property is the individual. So the government's job is to protect you from harm. That's it. You do not. The government does not intervene unless someone else is involuntarily um, or against your will intervening on your life and your property. It's infringing on your civil liberties. Exactly. And, yes. and, and so and so can I ask you, how does that differ from the government's job currently, from your opinion? Huh. Mm. They have endless, endless power. I mean, they have – it's tied to the money printers so they can distort free markets. They can effectively decide who does or – who does not have control over their own bodies. I mean, we were talking about um, recent legal action in Texas with the Supreme Court. And so that brought up the topic of abortion again. So effectively, the government and the Supreme Court is now able to decide who can and can't get an abortion. Or they're able to mandate um, you know, who, who sh- must be required to get a vaccine. Or, or you know, who is eligible to receive money. Or it's they they are doing who who can own a gun and who can't like there's there is unlimited power for them to control your life. And I think at the end of the day, what I on the top of my note sheets for this conversation, I, I, I put in stars on both sides of the statement, society or government does not incentivize personal responsibility and. In, in accountability for your own life and your own actions, because it's a lot easier. It's a lot cheaper, evolutionarily mm-hmm. speaking, to for, for the short term, it is cheaper to allow someone else to do these things for you and make these decisions for you. But in the long run, absolute power, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And 
eventually it will come around to bite you in the butt. And I don't, I don't know if it's happening right now, if we're going to get through this phase, but either way, the government has an unlimited amount of power right now and, and they're using it in full force, but they feel weak. I genuinely believe they feel weak. Otherwise, why would they have to mandate things? If, if, if they were strong, that means that people would have trust and believe in the institutions. The, the idea that they have to mandate things, I'm not just talking about vaccines, I'm talking all the different government mandates. It all exists in the shadow of the United States military. All of it does. They have a monopoly on violence. And so long as they're in charge of the money printer, that monopoly on violence is going to continue to exist. And they are able to enforce legal action on you, all of it in the shadow of the military. Well, and let, let, let's just expand on the word violence a little bit, because I, I think one of the things that has just happened over the course of time for unknown reasons entirely, but uh, the sprawl the web, right? And although the military complex is funded by uh, the unlimited resources of the American dollar from our Federal Reserve, the web and the expansion of the word violence is, is it goes into the categories of the leverage and the power that the government has. And, and, and violence is actually directly related to monetary policy, uh, the debt structures, the incentive to take out debt. And, and in my opinion, that is an expansion of the monopoly of violence that you discuss. It's, an, it's a far more acceptable and strategic potentially version of violence on your own people because the real word violence that you associate with is physical and, and, and that poses a much more difficult road for power and control than uh, financial violence. And so the monopoly of violence, like you said, is true, but I wanted to make the distinguishing factor that it, it expands beyond the traditional sense of the word violence in a physical form of going to war, right? We have a population that is uh, under the thumb of financial violence and that is related to the monopoly of violence definition that you have outlined, at least from my perspective. So I just wanted to make that clarification. Yeah, and there's this, it's it's coercion based on the threat, right? It's not, yes, if someone exactly. isn't gonna, you don't, if you don't pay your taxes, um, you know. How about Peter Schiff's dad, man? He went, to, he went to prison for it. Yeah, I don't actually know, you know more about that than I do, but like, let's, exactly, he went to prison. He didn't, he didn't face taxes and he went to jail. It didn't mean that someone showed up Actually, they may have showed up with guns, but people, they, they, I would hope, unless he was showing violence against them, they didn't show up with their gun pointed and say, you know, come with us. All they needed was the ability to threaten, the ability to threaten <laughs> pulling out the gun or, or, or beating him down or, you know, bringing additional personnel. And I don't, I don't know. It's, it's interesting because, you know, if you... We have this, this, we're at this point right now where there's so much wealth inequality that we can't necessarily just defund the police and rip things down and defund the military industrial complex and all of these things because 
The guns still exist. It leaves us very vulnerable. The guns still exist. The weapons of mass destruction, the nukes still exist. Someone still has the codes. Someone um, still has the money to fund these, uh, to fund a group of mercenaries and things like that. And because there's such inequality right now, it, it becomes more of, I mean, we're already living in like a feudal society, but I think we would, we would see true feudalism if we just removed the government at this point and, and kept the United States, no more printing of the United States dollar, um, none of that, and just left things as they were. We would see true unfolding of feudalism. And I don't know, I don't know how you solve for that. Um, I, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is pie in the sky would be nice, ideal world. I don't know. It, and I don't sure. know if, if we'll ever get there and if we do, would it ever be in our lifetime? But I do think that a technology or technologies that are disrupting institutions, third parties, and other rent-seeking intermediaries it's probably the closest that we're going to get right now to reshaping their societal infrastructure. Well, I totally agree. And, and in my opinion, Connor, it, it, it is because those things actually do incentivize personal responsibility and the world isn't ready for that in one day. You know what I mean? Um, but I think that that has to come to fruition in in order to get to the happy place pie in the sky. But with that comes an effort-based result system and a personal responsibility result system. So I think the pie in the sky scenario for many is this word equality. And I, and I don't know how to distinguish the differences of definitions that might be out there. But I do think that there is some sort of confusion on that singular word, because what we're talking about is moving towards uh, the direction of personal responsibility, which requires effort. And, and there can be many, many different uh volumes of effort by each individual. And, and that likely is going to result in uh, the results that they achieve. But that doesn't inherently mean that you get to an inequality, uh, uh, that doesn't inherently mean that you get to equality. And, and if you're not willing to accept that, then, then like, what the hell am I talking about? So, so I think um, just bringing this back and distinguishing between equality and equity, because I think, um, Diversity, equity, and inclusion are DEI are the are the hot topics right now. It's one of the biggest virtue signals out there nowadays that companies and schools and other institutions are beginning to adopt. And like the the distinction between equity and equality is is very very important. Um, equality means that each individual or group is given the same resources, what they do with that determines the outcome. There may be, they may be starting at different starting points. Some people are born into, you know, wealthier or higher socioeconomic status families. Other people are born into poor or lower socioeconomic families. 
other people are smarter, smarter, whatever different, different innate abilities, things like that. But the, the belief of equality is that if you give people the same resources, um, and, and people are provided like, you know, similar opportunities, like what they do with that is ultimately what should determine success. Whereas equality would say, okay, you were born in this circumstance. I was born in this circumstance. Let's give the person who's born in a lower circumstance more resources than the person in a higher circumstance so that they can both end up in the exact same place. So the definition is equity basically says each person has different circumstances and a system based on equity would allocate resources exactly um, and opportunities exactly so that you could achieve that necessary outcome of the same for both people. And that, um, not a fan of. Uh, but I think uh, thinking back to where we're at right now and dreamers and builders and technology, we're at a point right now where I think a lot of people um, overlook the fact that within our lifetime, we're going to have people going to Mars. And what, what, are the, what are the types of people that are going to be attracted to go to Mars? Mars is not, is not, uh, it's not a luxury getaway vacation. And <laughs> no, it's, and, no, and it's not, it's not something that you're guaranteed to come home with. It's not even guaranteed that you're going to make it there. And, and you can draw a lot of parallels to that in the people, the founders, the, the people who immigrated to the United States of America. Um, you know, we can hop aboard a cruise ship, cruise ship or get on an airplane nowadays and get across the world pretty seamlessly, assuming there isn't a, uh, a disease that uh, kind of infects the entire Petri dish and kills people off. Um, but, but like for the most part, up until COVID, we didn't have any issues like that. Um, the innate ability still exists. But the innate know. ability still exists to do it very quickly. Whereas our founding fathers and you know, anyone else who was aboard that like group of people that opted in, there was no guarantee that they were going to make it. And if they did, so, 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 so what type of people, I believe people, it is one people word with personal responsibility, who, who value personal responsibility or people who value freedom and are willing to accept risk. There you go. Yes, there you go. And, and are willing to, um, part of accepting risk also means accepting the potential consequences. That, that's what risk is, the, the potential downside and the consequences. And right now we live in a world where pretty much always a way out. There's always an escape hatch. You know, look at 2007, 2008, the banks got bailed out. You look at uh, COVID recently, well, stimulus galore. And there's, we're really just prolonging the inevitable, I believe. It's this, this idea of kind of, do you just want to like prevent it or do you actually just want to deal with it? Or sorry, prevent it or prolong it? Like, because we're not preventing anything. We're just prolonging it. And And I think that, um, getting back on track, these people who, who had personal responsibility and were willing to accept the risk, those are the people that embarked on the journey to create the United States and the people that, that um, created the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and valued freedom. And I think we're going to recruit a similar, all but kind of uh, a variation of that, those types of individuals who are going to want to go inhabit Mars. It's going to be the people who are risk takers. Um, I would hope that they're they're going to 
be selective on who they're choosing, right? But at the end of the day, everyone's going to have to have to take on some risk and assume some level of personal responsibility because you cannot just go there like you can go to a first world country and literally you can live a better life in a first world country as a homeless person than you can in a third world country right now. And I would argue Mars is worse than a third world country in the current state. And it's your it's, it's the job of people to build. And if you're not if you're not actively contributing to that process of building, you are not worth any resource expenditure on Mars. If you're not willing to to be a resource in building the next generation and, you know, uh, human bearing civilization, there is no need for you to be there. So you will either die and people will forget about you and throw you to the wolves or whatever potential life there is on Mars, or you will not be allowed to go. Um, you're, you're a liability. You're going to use resources. You're too big of a liability. doesn't mean you should die. I don't think you should die, but I'm saying you're not, you shouldn't be included. You know? It, it, yeah, you should not, well, you should not embark yeah, on the endeavor. So, 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 so really, you know, kind of where, where exactly were you going with that from a personnel perspective and a, and a, and a bringing up that topic? Like, like, like what, what's the home run point? Of personal responsibility. Oh, that's what, that's the home run point. All right. Sorry. I was just sorry. My own head. Well, it clearly wasn't much of a home run. It was maybe like a single or a double. Um, if you didn't get that. So that's my bad, but it's, it, yeah, it's personal responsibility. It's, it's these people who are willing to be responsible for the risk and be responsible for building the future and building the, the world or worlds that they want to be in. And so, well, and I think part of accomplishing that is is that there there really is no other way to embark on that journey, just like there was no other way to embark on the journey over to the United States, right? There really was no backup plan. And from my thought process, if you are ready to go to Mars and do that, right, like there, there really isn't a backup plan. You might have some sort of turnaround uh, point where you can still do that, but but after that, there's a point of no return. And And really what we have been prone to do is 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 minimize risk pain uh in in our society and and that's been pretty prevalent right that's all the way from big institutions to now our homeless people as you mentioned right but the results are not yielding the advertised outcome currently yeah so therein lies a problem with that incentive structure that you claim the result is inevitable. Um, but when you go into the new frontier, for some reason, all those soft, easier ways are just like literally thrown out the window. It's like, okay, who's ready, who's willing, and who's able? And what qualities do you bring? And then we go do it, exactly. right? Like that's that's a great, uh, mindset to have of any endeavor, whether you're founding a startup, going to Mars, or running a freaking country. And that's what is a little bit irritating. And I think it is irritating because it's like the definition of insanity, doing the same thing and expecting different results. And, and I'm kind of a little disgruntled on that subject because 
you know, we only have so much time on this earth and we have children to pass it down to. And passing down a more difficult situation has just been acceptable. And I'm just out here asking why? Like, and why? Is that why? Exactly. And I, I think it's got our, our issues and our incentive structures have... Um, there's a lot of things that I think have contributed to it becoming more short-term oriented. I think you could argue that like our, uh, our, how we've strayed away from being less of a religious society and less moral society can, can be associated with that. Um, but more importantly, like I think the fact that the people that we have governing our country or, or unelected bureaucrats that are quote unquote leading our institutions there are no, there is no long game for them until we have like some longevity technology that is you know, readily available. There's no long game for them. And if you're 70 or 80 years old, you are trying to optimize the next five to 10 years of your life. And whether you are doing it consciously or unconsciously, and there's a lot less skin in the game for those people than there would be someone who's 25 years old or 30 years old. And so that is why I think it's been allowed. And I also find it interesting that these same people, a lot of them will virtue signal and say, you know, we need to pass on a better, a better world to our kids. And they may say that in one area like climate change, but they're failing to see the root cause of it in, in you know, central banking and money printing. And, and they still allow that to happen. And I just, you know, how much of this is, this is the thought that if, if we can crack this question, we can, we can 100% go after the problem. If once we can figure out how much of it is conscious versus unconscious, you can d decipher the greed from the ignorant because the, or I should say more oblivious, um, because the people who are living in oblivion right yes. now, you can maybe wake them up. The people who are greedy and are acting on this, these perverse incentive consciously, they no longer deserve to be in power. They, are, they have been corrupted, and, and they are the ones costing us the next 50 to 100 years or 1,000 years. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how we solve for it. I mean, we have identified a lot of problems. Not entirely sure if there is a single path forward. But I think it's important that we continue to have conversations like this, because if we don't, people are going to continue to just have their brains turned off. And even if other people don't listen to us, at least it's valuable for you and I to think through these things. Continue our personal responsibility, exactly. right? Because that's all we can really 100%. do. So I would say that the halfway decent place to leave it. Um, so thank you, anybody that's been listening to this. Uh, Colin is uh, new for us too, so this is the first stab at it. I'm massively impressed with the user friendliness of just executing this first conversation on the app called Colin. So um, that's all I have for today. Uh, how about you, Connor? Uh, that's that's all I have right now. Um, just. Quick little plug on other socials. If you want to, to see Matt on social, he's at Matt Burnham. If you want to see me, my Twitter handle is at CraftConnor underscore. 
Um, but yeah, thank you anybody who took the time to, to listen to this today and hopefully you found this valuable. Feel free to just shoot us any, any feedback, DM us, any other topics that might be interesting. Can't guarantee we're going to talk about it, but um, definitely a conversation. Always yeah, reach out. Always reach always out. Reach out. Definitely a conversation. I think uh, we have plenty more to continue discussing on and to uh, keep going. So good stuff. Absolutely. Love Thank it. You. Thank you. Bye-bye.